0: Welcome to Fine-Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on The Light, The Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, well, Drew is missing this week, but but with good reason, uh, later this week, starting on Thursday, January 18th to be exact, Mr. Taylor is headed up to Park City, Utah, uh, where Drew will then be covering the 2024 Sundance Film Festival. Not going to lie, folks, this is a very big deal. Uh, Reporters actually fight for the right to cover Sundance, and credentials to cover this prestigious event are very hard to come by. So the fact that Drew has managed somehow to score one and then gets to hang out with the sorts of stars and filmmakers who typically show up for Sundance is, again... A very big deal. Mind you, the downside of Mr. Taylor getting this sort of professional opportunity is, well, Sundance Film Festival runs through Sunday, January 28th, which means that Drew isn't going to be around or going to be able to take part in the next couple of fine-tuning, which is fine. I'll hold down to the fort while he's up there freezing in Park City. Seriously, I just checked the weather report for that corner of Utah They're expecting one to three inches of snow tonight with temperatures in the low 20s. So I I hope the poor guy packed a paca. Um, But anyway, let's all send some warm thoughts Mr. Taylor's way as I begin this solo edition of Fine Tuning, which I'm recording on Sunday, January 14th, a day before Martin Luther King Day and a week or so after uh, the Golden Globes and just wanted to follow up on that bit of news Uh, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron took home this year's Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature Film. Not exactly earth-shaking news. Uh, This year, the smart money for a while now has been on Ohio's latest project, which once upon a time was talked up as the very last movie that Miyazaki would ever make. Uh, That seems to have changed. Uh, Anyway, um, it, it, it would seem like The Boy and the Heron will be taking home Oscar gold come March 10th of this year, which is when the 96th Academy Awards will be held at the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. Um, just a reminder, the voting for this year's Oscar nominees began this past Thursday, January 11th, and ends, well, today, uh, the day that this episode of Fine-Tuning goes live online, uh, Tuesday, January 16th. Now, uh, we'll then find out who this year's Oscar nominees are, one week from today, on Tuesday, January 3rd. And speaking of January 23rd, that's the day that Disney's Wish will be released digitally. Um, Now, Walt Disney Home Entertainment just revealed that the Blu-ray of this Chris Buck and Fawn Vera Sunthorn film will be released some seven weeks later, on Tuesday, March 12th, which, by the way, happens to be my 65th birthday, that's quite the gap between the digital release of a new Walt Disney Animation Studio production and the Blu-ray of that same film. And I, I wanted to know if Disney had done the same thing last year with Strange World, so did a little research out ahead of today's show. And that Don Hall film originally opened in theaters on November 23rd, 2022, uh, whereas the digital version of Strange World, that became available on all major platforms on December 23rd of, of that same year, uh, again, 2022. So that's roughly four and a half weeks later, um, whereas the Blu-ray of um, Disney's Strange World then uh, became available for purchase on February 14th uh, of last year, 2023. So, That's seven and a half weeks later. Um, So, okay, that distance is basically the same. The only difference this time around uh, uh, was the gap between when the theatrical version of Walt Disney Animation Studios' latest was released and uh, the digital version of the same film became available on other platforms. And again, it was four and a half weeks for Disney's Strange World, whereas with Disney's Wish... It's a nine-week gap between when this Chris Buck and, again, the Fawn, Vera, Sun, Thorn film was first released to theaters and then when Walt Disney Animation Studios uh, then released, uh, their latest was released digitally on all major platforms. And effectively doubling the distance there. And you got to wonder what Disney's thinking is there. I mean, Eisner, <laughs> Eisner, apologies, Iger uh, has supposedly been telling folks at, at Marvel and Lucas and P- Pixar that the stuff that Disney's studio produces needs to feel special again. So could we maybe be dealing with an artificial scarcity effort here? Um, speaking of Pixar, there is some news uh, about that animation studio over the past week. And, and speaking of news, just want to remind you that the news portion of this week's fine tuning is brought to you by turingplans.com Touring Plans can help you save time and money at theme parks like the Magic Kingdom at the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. So if you're looking for help when it comes to planning out your next excursion to Orlando, please check them out at touringplans.com. Okay, so in theory, right now should be a happy time for the folks up in Emeryville. Uh, Pete, Dr. Soul which, due to the pandemic, was initially robbed of a theatrical release and went straight to Disney Plus back on December 25th, 2020. Uh, that film was finally released to theaters this past Friday, uh, January 12th. But instead of talking up Soul, all anyone can talk about now, uh, at least in regard to uh, Pixar, is the news that TechnoCrunch broke on uh, Thursday, January 11th, which then revealed that Pixar Animation Studios is is expected to lay off an undetermined number of staffers in the latter part of 2024. Now, just to be clear here, Pixar Animation Studios didn't necessarily dispute this news when TechCrunch broke it uh, late last week. But what unnamed senior officials up in Emeryville then told Variety was, well, The number that TechCrunch was citing when it came to these pending layoffs said that as much as 20% of the staff uh, at at Pixar Animation Studios, that number was too high. That the number of employees that would eventually actually be let go was much lower than that. Um, By the way, work still continues on Inside Eye 2. uh, That Kelsey Mann movie arrives in theaters on June 14th of this year, 2024. I'm not going to lie to you folks, Uh, Pixar seems to have our target on its back lately. I mean, for example, Disneyland fans were especially vocal recently about that temporary photo op marquee that's supposed to be set up in Town Square at that theme park as part of Pixar Fest, uh, which is being held at the Disneyland Resort from April 26th through August 4th of this year, you know, uh, 2024. I have to say, I love how people are so passionately complaining about this, again, temporary uh, structure and how it's, it's ruining Waltz Park. And it's like, oh, honey, <laughs> if you find the Pixar Fest photo op marquee in town square so offensive, just be happy that you're alive now rather than back in the mid-1980s, which is when State Fair blast to the past and circle fantasy were presented at that same theme park. That's when you would have found tight ropes stretched across Main Street, full-sized Ferris wheels set up in the hub, not to mention greasers and girls in poodle skirts wandering up and down that turn-of-the-century small-town America. Uh, Your head would have exploded from all of these visual anachronisms. And just want to remind you also that Walt Disney himself Put a medieval castle at the end of a street leading into a small American town? Um, you, 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 Walt did this all the time. Put things together that didn't necessarily fit or, or make sense from a thematic point of view. I mean, again, let's talk about you get on the train in Tomorrowland. So, you know, what's the first thing you see after you pull it out of the station? You see dusty stuffed animals in the Grand Canyon diorama followed by animatronic dinosaurs in primeval world. And then then your journey ends in turn of the century, uh, you know, America at Main Street Station. And and why? Why do do any of these disparate elements make any sense from a storytelling point of view? Nope. But because Walt Disney was in charge of Disneyland Park, when these elements were set into place, we accept it because, well, Walt did it. So it's got to be good, right? (sighs) <sighs> this is kind of why I get tired listening to that subset of, of Disney theme park fans who are, are, are constantly complaining about how the company is ruining things by, by changing Walt's park. And this especially makes me crazy when when they start whining about Epcot, because let's be honest here, people. Walt had been dead for a decade when the Imaginers finally locked in their design for Epcot the theme park, not Epcot the city. So that place with Figment, the little purple dragon, sure. Feel free to get a selfie of your, you know, of yourself with the new statue of Walt that they just set up at Dreamer's Point, but just understand that that theme park as enjoyable as it may be was not what the company's founder wanted to build when he bought all of that swampland in Central Florida. And and, and again, uh, not to be obnoxious here, but Walt the man had very little, if anything, to do with the design of the place we know today. Okay, so I know that rant is going to get me letters from the Disney diehards out there. So let me just double down here and and say that the feature on the second half of today's show is going to have nothing to do with Disney. It's it's actually about the early early days of Hanna Barbera and what it took a William Hanna and Joe Barbera to get their very first animated series for television. Out the Door. The story involves a surprising amount of Hollywood history. Uh, Both Charlie Chaplin and Harry Cohn, the infamous head of Columbia Studios, they make a cameo appearance in this tale, which is why you might want to stick around and give it a listen. But first, this... And we're back. Okay, now on to today's feature. Um, earlier this week, I was over on YouTube where someone had lovingly stitched together the opening numbers title sequences for, for several dozen Saturday morning cartoons that Hanna-Barbera produced. And <laughs> to be honest, I was kind of shocked at how many of these theme songs I could sing along with verbatim without missing a word. And. I, We've got a gorilla for sale, McGilla gorilla for sale. Won't you buy him, take him home and try him, gorilla for sale. I, I did mention earlier on in the show that I'm turning 65 later this year, I, and uh, which means I spent far too much time in my childhood, parked in front of my family's television, watching shows that HB Enterprises, Inc., Produced, uh, by the way, that, that's the name of the first animation studio that William H- <laughs> and Joe Barbera founded back in July of 1957. Mind you, prior to getting started making cartoons for television, these two produced 114 shorts while they were in the employ of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And, and by the way, seven of those shorts wound up taking home Oscars for Best Animated Show between 1943 and 1953, which, I'm not going to lie, kind of ticked off Walt Disney. But when MGM suddenly decided to shut down its own on-the-lot animation operation on May 15th, 1957, largely because sales of movie tickets were falling off due to the rise in popularity of television, Bill and Joe suddenly found themselves out in the cold. Now, another set of animation producers might have been upset that television had just cost them their cushy gig at MGM. Not William Hanna and Joe Barbera. They saw TV not as their enemy, but rather their savior. They then took their expertise, which again had been honed over the 20 years that Bill and Joe had worked in MGM. They actually met there back in 1937 when, when Hanna and Barbera had just begun working in animation. And they then laser-focused in on the idea of producing animation specifically for television, which, to quote the title of Floyd Norman's great book about uh, that Disney legend's own career in animation, um, these shows had to be faster and cheaper. HBO Enterprises, Inc., that's Bill and Joe's first animation company, that's what it initially was called, Uh, It threw open its doors on July 7th, 1957, less than two months after MGM's own animation studio was shuttered on uh, May 15th of that same year. Again, 57. Uh, Hannah Barbera persuaded a handful of their old co-workers to come over and join them at their new operation. Now, where this gets kind of interesting is the first place that Hannah Barbera worked out of after they left MGM which you got to remember that that place in Hollywood was once known as having more stars than there were in heaven. Anyway, they then went to the former home of another member of Hollywood royalty. And that was Charlie Chaplin studios, uh, which even today is located on the corner of North La Brea Avenue and sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Now, if you've seen the Muppets, uh, the Muppet movie that Walt Disney Pictures released back in November of 2011, and remember that old uh, Tudor structure—the the one that had the giant statue of Kermit dressed as Chaplin's Tramp—you uh, know, up on the rooftop—that's actually Chaplin Studios, which was built back in 1917, and this is where Charlie shot uh, many of his classic feature-length films, like. Uh, the Kid, City Lights, and The Great Dictator. Chaplin was the victim of political persecution. Uh, Scott Iman has just published a great book on this topic, uh, Charlie Chaplin versus America: When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Uh, Simon and Schuster publishes 432-page tome back in late October of last year, 2023. Anyway, Chaplin leaves the United States in October '52, and he sells off his studio uh, the following year in '53. Place stands empty for a couple of years. Uh, given that it's on this really valuable piece of real estate, uh, there is talk for a time of, of pulling the, the place down. And well, you know, one version has them putting in a shopping center, the other one a block of apartments. But in 1955, the people who were making the Adventures of Superman TV show, the, the one that starred George Reeves, they ran out the place for a while, and so. The idea of pulling down Chaplin Studios is then abandoned and which is why the space is then available when William Hanna and Joe Barbera are looking for a home for their fledgling television uh, animation operation. So okay, Bill and Joe are now looking to create an animated series for television. So uh, what's the show going to be about? Well, it turns out while Hanna and Barbera were still working at MGM, they had actually developed a series for television uh, and they showed this idea uh, a show that was built around a cat and a dog to Studio Brass in '56, but they passed on the project. So Bill and Joe still had all of this material that they developed for that animated TV series, which they wanted to call Rough and Ready. Hannah and Barbara then reach out to George Sidney, who was a, a veteran producer at, at MGM, and he had actually worked with uh, Bill and Joe, uh, they had created special animated sequences for a number of films that he made for for MGM. Uh, anyway, George comes in as uh, Bill and Joe's partner on H&B Enterprises, Inc. And, and not only that, Sydney then uh, convinces Screen Gems to distribute whatever animated series that hanna Barbero winds up producing. And then to further shore up this, I'm not going to lie here, pretty flimsy enterprise, George persuades Harry Cohn, the legendary head of Columbia Pictures, one of the toughest guys in Hollywood, to put up 80% of the money needed to fund uh, the launch of HB Enterprise Zinc. Now, mind you, while Bill and Joe are making six minute long shorts for MGM, uh, you know, that they've been working with a, a budget. Uh, per picture. Um, And so, you know, they look, eh, all right, we're going to move into television. You know, people are going to want us to produce these things, as Floyd mentioned, faster and cheaper. So they said, okay, let's assume going into this that we're going to have to cut the budget in half. And so we're going to be working with just $17,500 for now. We'll creep in the length a little bit. We'll make it five minutes long. But that'll work. Well, Turns out Screen Gems doesn't like that number. In fact, they want HB, Enterprises Inc., to deliver a five-minute-long animated cartoon for television at just $3,000 a piece. And, and then if they really want to make a deal here and they really want to entice a network to get in business with them, Bill and Joe are told that, you know, you really need to even cut that a little lower, you know, that, that it would be ideal if your production... Point price point per short was just twenty seven hundred dollars, and I, you have to understand that that it's not like Hannah and Barbara had a choice at this point. They they needed to make this deal, otherwise, the handful of MGM animation veterans that they persuaded to come on board HB Enterprises Inc. would then be scattered to the full width. So it's like, all right, all right, we agree, twenty seven hundred uh, dollars a piece per short, we can make that work. But then, it gets worse. This is when the executives of Screen Gems reveal that, okay, we we were just talking with NBC, they love this idea. However, they need episodes of Rough and Ready ready to go on the air by December 15th of this year. 1957, again. So it's just five months after they've launched the studio. And, And look, not gonna lie, an impossible situation. But Bill and Joe huddled together with their creative team in in the old Charlie Chaplin studios and then really began pushing the envelope when it came to the term limited animation. There were those back then who, when they viewed the early Rough and Ready episodes, which leaned into a lot of key poses and a lot of walk cycles, quickly dismissed this animated series for television as basically illustrated radio. But that said, one genuinely smart thing that Hanna-Barbera did back then was right from the get-go they had rough and ready produced in in color. I mean it would've been so much cheaper to to you know to do this in black and white, but going color I mean really added to the expenses of producing this animated series. And what was interesting is Bill was adamant about this aspect of rough and ready. You know, it's a see Hannah said, look, I know that 99% of the television sets in the country right now are black and white, but color is coming and, and cartoons are forever. And if we produce these things in color now, we'll be ahead of the game. Later on, Bill Hannah would say producing rough and ready in color. While it did cut into HB Enterprises, Inc.'s initial profit margins, was honestly one of the smartest things he ever did, uh, because that Hanna animated series, because it was done in color, it then extended Rough and Ready's overall shelf life. And okay, so the very first episodes of Rough and Ready debut on NBC on December fourteenth, 1957, again, less than five months after HB Enterprises, Inc. had been formed. This produced-for-television animated short, they were so well-received that NBC quickly signs Bill & Joe to a five-year-long contract to produce additional animated series for that network, which, which then led to the creation of Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, Quick Draw McGraw, Pixie Dixie and Mr. Jinks, Oggy Doggy and Daggy Doggy Daddy, let alone the Flintstones. And all of this because, well, executives at MGM back in 1956 looked at those storyboards and sketches that Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera had worked up for that rough-and-ready TV show and said, yeah, we're not interested in doing that. You're free to do whatever you want with, with that material. Because that's not how studios work today, folks. If you produce something while you're on a studio's payroll, that material then becomes that company's IP. And I honestly have to wonder, sitting here, you know, in in 2024, looking back to, you know, 57... Why is it that somebody at MGM didn't sue HB Enterprises Inc. back in in the late fifties, early nineteen sixties? I mean, Rough and Ready was a big success for NBC. It it ran for three seasons on the network. There were one hundred and fifty six episodes produced. A lot of commercial time. Most of it, by the way, for Kellogg's cereal and Ideal toys was sold for that show and. MGM legally would have had a right to claim a good chunk of that change if they'd just gone to court and said, Hey, Rough and Reddy* was developed on our dime while Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera were still working at MGM. We have a legal right to some of that money that those characters have earned for HB Enterprises Inc., and I wonder why that never happened. And speaking of things I wonder about, who will Drew and his equally talented co-host Charles Hood be talking to on this week's episode of Light like the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. And speaking of podcasts, want to remind you, we have a couple of them here at Jim Hill Media that we'd like you to check out. Uh, there is, of course, Disney Dish, which I do with Lentesta. Uh, likewise, Brian Gahn and I just recorded a brand new episode of Looking at Luke's Home that should, in fact, drop tomorrow. And uh, worth noting here that Eric Hersey and I are working on a revival of our Universal podcast, which might show up here as early as late this week. Oh, also want to remind you that Len and I, are our, our newest project, Disney Unpacked, uh, our first ever video series, which we're producing in collaboration with veteran Imagineer Jim Schull. This month's episode is about Mickey's Birthday Land, whereas next month's episode, which will debut on Sunday, February 4th, over on Patreon, is is kind of a sequel. That, Disney Unpacked, will discuss the development and construction of Mickey's Toontown, which opened the Disneyland Park out in California on January of 1993. Um, Beyond that, I want to take a moment here and to sincerely thank those of you who contributed to the GoFundMe that uh, Lentest and Tim O'Brien set up to, to honor Aaron Adams memory, our, our late great producer, uh, their original goal uh, there was to raise $5,000 to help uh, Sabrina Geiger. That that's Aaron's widow with the unexpected bills that, that, that are associated with, with Aaron's untimely passing. But thanks to your generosity there's now more than $15,000 sitting in that GoFundMe account. And I have to say, you guys are just the best. So, all right. Anyway, heading out the door here. Want to remind you about social media. Uh, you know, to keep tabs on what Drew's up to. Uh, you want to head over to, to X Twitter, uh, where his handle is Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit. Whereas you can find me on X Twitter, whatever. Uh, also, Instagram as Jim Hill Media and on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. Final favor to ask here, folks, if you could go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, fine-tuning, but also uh, Mr. Taylor's uh, efforts with, with Charles Hood, the Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. That would be very, very helpful. And I think that's going to do it for this week. So like I said, please send some warm thoughts. Drew's way because it it gets cold up there in Park City. Let's all look forward to the stories he's going to bring back from Sundance. But thanks for listening. Until next time, take care, okay?